In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com. Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of Between the Lines. On this podcast, you will hear about and from lesser-known Canadian authors and writers who, for whatever reason, have remained under the radar of traditional publishers and publishing houses. You will also hear from editors, literary agents, and publishers in the hopes of giving us all a better understanding of how it all works together. If it has something to do with writing or the writing process, you are going to hear a discussion about it here. I'm your host, Randy Lacey. I'm encouraging you to grab your bevy of choice, get comfy, and get ready to go between the lines. People come into writing in several different ways. For some, it was a teacher at school handing out a writing assignment, while for others, it may have been by reading and wondering if they might be able to write. Every writer has started their writing journey on a different path. Each writer's journey will be different, yet similar. But one thing all writers have in common is a different destination. Welcome to another episode of Between the Lines. Today, I will be speaking with Guy Han, author of The Grave Thief, a middle grade novel. Hello, Dee, and welcome to Between the Lines. Thanks for having me, Randy. I'm happy to be here. It was recommended to me by somebody who I recently interviewed that I should seek you out and get an interview. So I'm glad you accepted and here we are. (laughs) But before we get into full swing with this interview, I wonder if you would give the listeners a brief bio. I have heard you are quite an intriguing adventurer. Care to elaborate on this or anything else? Sure. Yeah. Well, I had an unusual childhood for sure. And I think a lot of these things have made their way into my into my novels. <laughs> so I was raised by a family of matriarchs and they were all travelers and backpackers. And so one of my earliest memories is of me sitting on the side of a road and my grandmother teaching me how to hitchhike. And we would hitchhike together just around Calgary. Calgary. Yeah, around Calgary. My grandmother was, she was a character, like an infamous character. (laughs) So yeah, that's, those were my growing up memories were just often in a backpack or hitchhiking or exploring caves and and cities and all sorts of things with my, with my strong matriarchs. (laughs) Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? 
Well, I guess that kind of leads into, I met a lot of people on my travels and, and got to visit a lot of cultures and eventually a lot of countries. And uh, those things have made their way into my, into my work. And now I am, I'm living in Okotoks, Alberta. And so with my small family and we're having a, yeah, we're, we have a lot of adventures here, which don't involve hitchhiking, but we still do some pretty, some pretty wild things. So we love traveling as a family and, and that's traveling with children always makes for awkward and interesting adventures. Don't say though. <laughs> <laughs> what is your day job? I'm a teacher and, and now author. And so, yeah, I'm a middle school teacher. That would explain a few things then. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you for that. If, if there's nothing else, we can go right into question period, or if there's something you want to share with the world or whoever, <laughs> whoever's listening i'm good to go yeah well uh, i'm sure we'll uncover uncover nice gems as we go oh probably so with that said let's get right into it then question number one right off the top is how did you first come to realize you had a voice for children's books Sure. Well, that it comes from uh, teaching middle school, I think, uh, just having to talk all day uh, in front of and to middle schoolers. I love listening to their humor. I think I am kind of a big kid myself, so I that their humor is my humor. And yeah, I just, I love the kinds of things that they talk about and think about. And, and that's how I got started was just writing uh, through kind of short middle school stories. It brings to mind, you know, a TV show called Kids Say the Darndest Things. Do you remember that show? <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. And what's that old expression, out of the mouths of babes? Yes. And how yeah. true is that, right? It's so true. I love recording the things that my own children say. I like to write them down so that I don't forget their hilarious jokes in the way they see the world. Well, do you use any of that as material for what you write? I do. I actually, um, I love it when people will message me on social media and they'll say, my, you know, my child is reading this one section of your book. And, and inevitably they always send me a picture of with this one line and this one page. And I think the line is my, my butt don't need no air <laughs> because somebody is in a sack and they're, it's in the grave thief actually. And they're stabbing the sack and it's the brother is hidden in the sack and he's like, stop stabbing me. He's, you're going to stab my butt. And anyways, this is always the line that I get sent because I don't know, this is the middle school. This is, this is what they think about. <laughs> Hopefully it's not what they think is important though. <laughs> Who were your test subjects? They were my, my first classroom. I used to be a social studies teacher. I still am on occasion. And uh, I found the textbooks were just really a bit dry. You know, I'd be, we'd be reading out loud together. And then I came up with this idea one day that I would, I would rewrite a section of the textbook and I would not, not necessarily embellish. I would make it more spicy. And I would read it with, uh, I would add more description. And, and luckily for me, I was teaching on the bubonic plague. So that was really easy to spice up um, yep. and make more interesting than that. Because there were so many fantastic historical facts that came out of that. So anyways, I started by rewriting the textbook <laughs> and reading it out loud. And, and my students were like, oh, this is so interesting. And then I just kind of went into fiction from there. And 
And uh, I noticed that when the kids stopped sleeping during the bubonic plague section, I thought I'm onto something, you know, I, I could really, I could take this skill set somewhere else. That's yeah. good for you that you were able to recognize that. I think it's really good that teachers do that because I mean, I went to school, believe it or not. And my teachers were most, for the most part, boring and dull as, as much as the material that they were trying to relate to us. Yeah, yeah, it is the case sometimes. <laughs> and it's unfortunate, but when a teacher can go out of their way, for me, that tells me that a teacher does care about the students and getting this to them. Absolutely. And also, it's just way more fun when they're not sleeping and they're talking to you. <laughs> That's an easy cop out for any teacher if the students are sleeping, though. I, I've enjoyed just being able to kind of experiment and, you know, get my passion back for teaching. I think that's one of the ways that I did get my passion back. And, and I had a wonderful, I have a wonderful friend, Rochelle, who I bounce all of my ideas off of. And she's my, she's my other test subject. And she always kind of reflects back at me how, how she sees it and how she thinks students are going to take it. And yeah, I, I love that. I love having a variety of input from these original test subjects. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually had the most amazing moment yesterday when one of my former students has now become a teacher herself um, from my first classroom that I actually talked about this book with many years ago. She's a teacher now and she is now teaching my book to her classroom. And I just think that that is such a cool full circle thing because when originally when she was in my classroom, she said, you know, I, you really inspired me to want to start teaching. Because I think she saw how fun it could be and how much passion you could put into it. And anyway, she's, I have no doubt she's an awesome teacher. She's just a lot of fun. And it's so cool to see that. I bet you teaching is more than just a job for you, though, then. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, you're a mentor in a lot of ways. And you learn so much from kids. I think that's why a lot of teachers love teaching is we, we gain so much insight from them. Next question. (laughs) <laughs> Can you have a story without a lesson being taught? Or, uh, in other words, can a story be just a story for entertainment's sake? Hmm. You know, I, I kind of I have a, a, a multi-perspective view <laughs> on this. I think you can have a story that is hilarious and wandering, particularly in children's fiction, and especially in picture books. But I think that generally, there's always some sort of meaning to be taken from it. There are a few that are, you know, I I just read one recently, who I love them. I love him. Uh, John Clausen. He wrote, I want my hat back. (laughs) It's a picture book. It's basically about a bear. He's looking for his hat. It's gone. He asks all the forest animals where it went and everyone's like, I don't know. And then eventually he finds the the thief who stole his hat. And at the end, you're aware that he ate the thief. Um, And then he's wearing his hat again. That's all you see on the last page. I was reading this story and I thought, like, there's no particular, there's not, there's not a happy moral. That's for sure. (laughs) Uh, But it, but it is, but it is an important lesson nonetheless. So I think it's just a lot of, a lot of children's fiction these days, uh, authors have really started kind of diverging from like the heavy handed, obvious uh, truth morals that we see in a lot of the earlier uh, children's fiction. And now we're kind of more along this journey of having fun and the things, the lessons we might learn along the way that, that might be lessons or just even just reflections 
<laughs> I think that I think there takes a real it's a subtle art to be able to be entertaining and still have something to be taken away but whether that or not that's a you know a heavily moral lesson I think kids can usually recognize when you're trying to pound something in and generally it backfires you know generally they don't enjoy it if it's not if it's not fun if it's more didactic then kids are going to take a step back and and you can see this in the bestsellers that are out there now even just you know remember uh, Dr. Seuss's Green Eggs and Ham (laughs) you know you're just reading it and you're like and it's all this all the different versions of Green Eggs and Ham and it's just having a good time and then at the end I think the takeaway is like do maybe we should try new things that's the takeaway (laughs) it wasn't a huge lesson but it was a fun story the, the way you answered that last question is a good segue into this next question. It's almost as if you were reading the questions before me. I'd like to discuss the subject of agendas, if that's all right with you. Yeah, sure. All right. It's no secret that agendas abound everywhere. You don't have to be one of those tinfoil wearing kind of people, or yeah. maybe you do, but, <laughs> or one of those conspiracy nuts or to see it, right? But do you feel that agendas have slipped into any or every aspect of writing, regardless of the genre? Yeah, I think I think that's a layered question. I think for sure, on one level, there is there is agenda in children's fiction, absolutely. But this is you know, on one level, we're talking about a writer is representing their beliefs and their moral code. Of course, everything that they, that has contributed to who they are as a person often filters through into their work because uh, writing is a form of art, right? And art is an expression of our, our self and our beliefs, our ideas. So no matter what, there's going to be things that are reflected from the author's personal point of view. But then there's the whole other level of agenda in which you know, it's a, it's a specific intent and particularly political things. I do see more maybe overt agenda these days as we have movements happening. And I think sometimes, sometimes these can be really good pushes to bring us into acknowledging a diversity or identity, different things like that. Sometimes these are, these are pushes because we want to see more of that because it's been lacking and publishers are noticing that and they're trying to make a good change. But along with that, we, we will have, I think, very specific agendas coming in as well that aren't necessarily a story that can have, you know, a mass appeal or just kind of a general, like we were talking about earlier, a general takeaway. Sometimes it's so specific that it it becomes stifled. It kind of backfires. Yeah. You know, that, and I, I've kind of, I've seen that as well. I've seen just the swing of the pendulum all the way to the other side where it, it was so, it was so heavy handed, like we were talking about earlier, it, you know, it can be in a didactic lesson or it can be in an actual, you know, political takeaway. Yeah. Agendas um, can be good and healthy or that they can be bad and unhealthy. Yeah. And, and, and authors have a, a fair amount of freedom these days. There is still the gatekeepers uh, in, in the library and, you know, teachers and, and different people that are approving these books. But truthfully, we've seen a lot of, in recent years, freedom and for authors to be able to express different things, which, yeah, which has two sides of the coin to it. I, I was reading the other day, another Roald Dahl um, kind of incident here was that he he was very uh, opinionated on his personal likes and things like that. And 
anyway, somebody had decided there was this whole agenda behind Horton Hears a Who. It's, it's a pretty famously controversial topic. Anyways, I won't get too into it, but he, somebody did, some group, political group wanted to use it for, for their own agenda. And um, they tried to contact him and eventually he was so angered by it because he, when he wrote it, he wrote Horton Hears a Who because he, he wanted to talk about, about little creatures and, and put in his own kind of moral beliefs, but he wasn't going for any specific political agenda and eventually he threatened to sue them (laughs) he was so angered by the whole incident and and you know it's so funny like people they they sometimes put their own agenda onto a book that really the author never intentioned anything of the kind with the book and you see a lot of that these days too that people are saying this book represents this and and the author never actually said that to begin with it's just that you know it's useful to have a a wildly famous book to use to to represent your ideas you know but on the other hand too at Roald Dahl he he hated beards and this was part of his personality and he put that into books every chance he could get and and you know I love yaks I put yaks into every book that I write (laughs) so you know there are likes there are dislikes there are personal personal things that authors will put into their work. I think you just have to find that line of if you are specifically going for an agenda, is it a story anymore that you have geared uh, for children to find enjoyment in or, or have you kind of crossed that line into, uh, is this an, is this a book you're actually trying to aim at adults, at the parents? Right. Your explanation kind of brings up this whole thing about art. So an artist will paint whatever that they paint and it means something to them. But most people looking at that take away their own interpretation. Mm -hmm. And that is true with writing to some degree as well. The author may have intended one thing, but the way people read it is maybe an entirely different thing. So is that necessarily an agenda or or what do you think about that? Right. Well, yeah, like we were talking about, you can... I think if you want to see something in this work and you want to use it as an example, then you know, nothing's really stopping you, but it wasn't necessarily intentioned for that. (laughs) You can read something into anything, right? Absolutely. And people twist (laughs) things to their own, whatever they, they twist and turn and, and make everything apply to how they want it to apply. Exactly. That's a a dangerous road to travel down. And I think too, I think um, I say good, good on the authors that do, you know, actually, sometimes speak publicly and say, Hey, I, this is what I am. This is what I'm trying to write in my work. You know, please don't bring these different things into it. If that's not what I meant as an artist, because I, I, I think sometimes authors get a lot of flack for saying for, for actually trying to be honest and say, yeah, no, this is what I, this is what I am trying to write. I'm trying to write a fun story. I think a lot of authors are afraid to speak out in this day of social media. And sometimes they just want people to take their work at, at, at face value. And, and that's okay. <laughs> yeah, as entertainment or what have you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what scares you the most about children's fiction? Well, that actually comes from our previous question. <laughs> it all ties together, doesn't it? <laughs> that's why it followed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, particular political agenda. For me, normalizing fads or, or, even, you know, I see a lot of this in TV writing for me as a teacher and as a parent of young children. I, you know, sometimes I'm watching these shows where characters who are 
let's say obsessed with like an, an unhealthy self-belief or an unhealthy behavior. And it becomes kind of normalized that, you know, this is just that character. And it's, 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 it's a, you know, it's a point for humor and it's used as a constant reference for, oh, this character is this way and it's always funny. And we always kind of use that. Not only does it get old, but it's, it's making it a normalized idea where my children are watching it and they're like, oh, is that, you know, is that how people should react to this situation? Or is this how this is, is this what I should be thinking of myself Mm -hmm. or about myself? That's the kind of stuff that scares me. Particularly because as a teacher, I see a lot of it now filtering down into the younger grades, particularly, you know, self-image or even a big one is relationships, the whole boyfriend, girlfriend idea or relationships that aren't just friendships coming down into the, uh, you know, like grade two or grade one. And, and my own daughter saying to me, Hey, what does this mean? (laughs) <laughs> and, 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 and I'm saying, you know, this isn't really something that she ever would have really considered on her own and something that really isn't relevant for her age group, her six-year-old age group. But here she is wondering, you know, is her hair okay? <laughs> are, are her clothes, are they trendy? Are they things like this? And for me as a parent, I just want her to live in this, in this state of imagination and, and self-discovery and exploration, not be afraid to explore and not to put any limits uh, on herself. And so, yeah, I am a parent that's watching to see what she's reading and seeing the messages that are being sent through reading or through TV. So teachers are responsible for their, for their curriculum, are they not? Oh yeah. Well, partially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the school board, they direct, if it's not going the way the school board wants, they kind of step in or how does that work with regards to making sure that you're teaching the kids what you think is important? Yeah, well, teachers are given a certain amount of freedom in, let's say, choosing novel studies or focus of, you know, literature circles or or projects that they're going to be working on. We call them um, inquiry projects. So say kids are going to be exploring a certain idea and, you know, teachers guide them in in certain resources to use. But Particularly in novel studies in the classroom, teachers are the ones that say, that bring in that novel and say to the whole group, hey, this is a good book. And by them endorsing this novel, hopefully they've read the novel and and hopefully they've kind (laughs) of looked into the background of it because teachers have a lot of influence, you know, and every year they might be teaching 30 or 60 or or in my case, 120 kids Mm -hmm. with the same novel. And, And so that's a, yeah, it's a lot of kids every year that are reading and getting ideas and it can be a fantastic way to expose them to new ideas. But I think a lot of teachers are carefully reading and considering the messages that are in these novels. Well, let's hope so at least anyway. I, I think, yeah, I, I think so. And I think certain novels have been banned too. And I think um, it's a, it's a good thing to look at those novels and say like, why are they banned? You know, should they be banned? And, and, you know, and teachers have the freedom to explore talking about these things with their classrooms too. I can remember my grade nine teacher who actually was the one that got me into writing, but he, at the beginning of the the school year, he gave us a list of assigned books that we were required to read. And I went over the list and I didn't like most of what I saw there, except for Shakespeare, for whatever reason, I was hooked on Shakespeare. But I I told my teacher, I said, I'm not going to read these. I'll give you a list of the books I would like to read. And I will do reports on and anything that you require me to do, I will do. But this is how I'm going to learn better. 
and yeah. I gave him my list and he went, okay, no, that's acceptable. Hmm. And uh, I, I thought that was a pretty gutsy move on his part to allow me to dictate the books that I wanted to read. And in the end, it helped me a lot. I think that's a discerning teacher. You know, I, 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 th- I think that's someone that understands that different students are reached in different ways. Absolutely. So, I mean, again, like I said, he was the one that inspired me to start writing poetry. What is the hardest thing you ever had to write or tried to write? Oh, good, good question. I think when I start off, every story is every story is difficult just to get the <laughs> idea out there. You know, for me, uh, short stories, short stories are very difficult because I have to condense an idea okay. and I'm I'm often not too good at that. <laughs> I just, I think, yeah, specifically to, I wrote one short story. It was an uh, adult short story and anything that's adult for me is more difficult because I can't, I can't revert to like crude jokes or talking animals unless I find a good reason to, which I always, I always do try. But <laughs> I think in adult writing, I can't, I can't kind of fall back on, on my usual humor. And uh, usually the, some of the topics are for for me. Whenever I write uh, adult topics, I just just darker. It's just, I just go to dark places, and I think it's because I'm exploring, you know, my own personal experiences. And so, yeah, one of those short stories was a heavy topic, and I found it difficult to write because, in some ways, it's really cathartic, and in some ways, you know, you're really bearing your soul. And some of that works its way into my children's fiction as well, you know, and I'll be on a, on a different level, but I'll be, you know, kind of crying as I'm writing a particular scene because kind of reliving, you know, your own experiences and, and just exploring how it might feel to read it as someone that maybe has had experience with that as well. You wouldn't describe yourself as a dark person though, would you? I'm not, I'm a very optimistic you know, bounce back kind of person. But I had a really, I had a bit of a difficult childhood. We had a lot of uh, death in our family early on and, and tragic accidents. And uh, so I think Hopefully that- Hopefully not while hitchhiking. I, no, <laughs> I should. No, thank goodness. My grandma was was too smart for that. But <laughs> no, I think it's just that some of that stuff, you know, you kind of unconsciously uh, go there in your work because you're exploring your own childhood. So, yeah, so some of it gets a little dark. It's I, I couldn't believe it when I started writing a kind of gothic dark fantasy, because that's actually what my book is, The Grave Thief. There's mm-hmm. a lot of death in my book. Um, that one of the major themes is death. <laughs> and, and redemption is another big theme. I love that. And I think it's because I am just um, processing all those things myself. And I know that kids are, and that a lot of the times we don't want to believe that maybe kids are processing those things on that level and and so that's what I actually do love to talk about is characters that you know as children experience lots of dark things that need to be spoken about so do you remember yeah. the, uh, the 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 controversy that Walt Disney stirred up with Bambi oh <laughs> yes even to this day when I watch it I cry <laughs> right but that was the first time ever in any of Walt Disney that uh, somebody died yeah. I mean, and isn't it the one we all remember, though? We all remember the emotion. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think another one for me is a, The Lamb Before Time. 
you know, uh, when Littlefoot's mother dies and Mm -hmm. then I, and I remember watching that as a, what, like a, maybe like a six, seven year old. I remember watching that and just being mesmerized and, and feeling all the, all the feelings and all the thoughts. And, and I was glad that they didn't pull any punches there as I, as I, as I grew older, because that became a meaningful story. So yeah. 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 Good stuff. What do you consider the hardest part about your writing journey? Is it the writing, the publishing, or the marketing? Or fill in the blank. You know, don't hate I think, me. Don't hate me. <laughs> you know, I think, I think being, you know, a, a, being a debut author and just having ha- had this novel come out this month, I wasn't. I I was so busy in the world of writing it and editing that I didn't project this far to what happens after the novel comes out. And the hardest thing for me has been the, the marketing during a pandemic. Wow. Wowzers. That's a tough one. And then also, you know, the reviews, you think you're ready because you have, most of us have critique partners and most of us have um, some trusted confidants that are looking at your work and telling you like it is. And, and generally I love that stuff and I eat that stuff up because I think reviews, I think, you know, critiques make you better. But once you get into your work is out there in the world and then, you know, any, anybody can read it, anybody can write reviews or, or, you know, very far reaching reviews as well. And, uh, and a lot of the time, like we were talking about earlier, you know, people will project ideas onto your work, messages maybe that, that you didn't necessarily, that you didn't write or, or that you didn't even notice because you, you didn't set out to (laughs) make a comment or a statement about particular things. So people can kind of reflect that back at you in reviews and you're like, whoa. So I think you just have to be, you have to take everything with a grain of salt and say, you know, the whole, everybody will have different opinions and a lot of people won't like your work and a lot of people will, and a lot of people will land in between in the meh kind of area. And I think you just, you know, that's something that I'm just experiencing as a new author and yeah, just kind of just sifting through it and taking it all in. So when you, not that you ever have, but when and if you ever got a negative review or comment, how likely are you to be able to draw something positive from that? Mm, that is something that I think is a wonderful talent. And that is something that I'm now becoming much more adept at doing. <laughs> you look at that uh, those reviews and you say, um, in what areas can I improve as a writer? And it's really, it's a good insight too, into, you know, what, what things do people really enjoy about this that you might maybe bring forward into your next work? You find your strengths, you know, like in your voice, we were talking earlier, what are the things that are really working for your particular audience? And how can you, yeah, project this into your career? So, yeah, it's it's super useful. It's so funny because it's on one hand, it's the most, for me, the most difficult part. And on the other hand, it's the part that um, that grows me the most. So isn't that so true, though, with the tough things about yeah, writing? It's a good trade-off. Yeah. What's going on around you when you sit down to write? Is there music playing or a dog uh, or are you eating something or... Is there music playing? Oh yeah. Well, I am a I'm a wildly distracted person. Uh, so <laughs> when I'm writing, I I almost feel like I need to be like in a like in a tomb in a vault. <laughs> a dark, but I'm not. But I there's that I, dark side. 
I would maybe opt for that if I had a cemetery in my backyard. I, I would, you know, I would probably contemplate that. I think anything from Blue Jays, the call of birds distracts me because uh, I, I am, I'm an amateur birder. So <laughs> those, I can be sitting by a window, anything can distract me. So I have to really have a focused area. I generally like to have things that I like to look at. So paintings and things are by me when I'm writing. And I just bought this wonderful new laptop and it's a pleasant color, but you know, anything past those, (laughs) my, my excitements for my day have to be really limited. I mean, the second that somebody breaks out like some chocolate or a fun song, I'm done. I'm gone. I've lost the thread of my story. All I can think about is, you know, sour soothers. That's all I can think about. And then I, you know, I go off on these tangents, like how are sour soothers made? You know, (laughs) how do they make the mold for sour soothers? Are there different flavors? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I have to, you know, kind of a a sterile environment sometimes for me. (laughs) Get your husband to build you a a writing shed out back. (laughs) He did. Can you believe it? He did. I, I have a writing shed and actually I am fairly productive there as long as the blinds are closed. <laughs> there, there, I, I'm not sure of the names, but there are very, some very famous authors who have such a, and they've got a bed in there and a typewriter. They used, you know, a typewriter. Now it would be a computer maybe. I don't know, but they do have these writing sheds that are just set up for, if I need a nap, I'll take a nap and then come back to it. And I think it's yeah. a great idea. I think it is too. I get a lot of inspiration from my naps. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not going to touch that one. <laughs> no, I, I, I like that. So <laughs> finish the following sentence. I wish I had written. And why? Hmm. Ooh, that's a really good one. Um, okay. I've got it. I was um, in a grade one classroom and they were reading it out loud. Dory Phantasmagory. And I know that it was written by someone that used to be a grade one teacher, which is probably why it's so fantastic as a read aloud. It's for ages six to eight. And I have never been so floored by the humor and by just the the read aloud potential of it. They were hooked. I've never seen a classroom so hooked. And so for a moment, I had that selfish desire where I wish that I had been the one that had written something so spectacular that, you know, it's really hard to hold the attention of six-year-olds for 25 minutes. Like, I don't know if you've, it's a feat and they were riveted. And I, I, I had such respect for Miss Hamlin. (laughs) <laughs> no that's that's a great thing though i mean you know it, that's a a specific talent yes that to not make a lot it, of people have yes yes to make it just something you know when you read it aloud just to just have all of all of the humor all of that rich uh, background come through and this character is just imagining things all the time in their mind and you can just you can imagine their imaginary friends inside your mind too while you are listening and I just wow this one kid I think his mouth was open for the entire time and another kid who generally loves to fidget with his socks and pull them off and on he wasn't those socks stayed on oh, really? I mean that's that's a sign of a true magician of a writer that knows what she's about. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's incredible though. I mean, you think about these little things and it's like, 
this is what this kid always does. And to distract him or her from that says something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have one more question for you. And uh, I actually wrote it out this morning. And uh, I told you there's going to be some surprises. So this question is aimed at, at those seeking to be traditionally published who may have no idea how to proceed. Can you briefly walk us through your publishing journey? Sure. You say you're also represented. So how did that happen as well, if you don't mind? Absolutely. Yeah, it was a little bit of kind of a, a winding journey for me. Being a, being a teacher, uh, I had always written things mostly for me, for my students, um, not really with the intention of sending them out there. And then I got to the point where uh, enough, enough of my students encouraged me that I, I gained some courage. And so I sent some of my pieces, I began sending them to contests and in one of these contests, I became a finalist. It was the Canscape Writing for Children. And so they looked at my work and one of the editors actually, or one of the, the judges, ended up being an editor for Anik Press. And so she said, hey, I'd love to see more of your work. And I was thrilled. And the only problem was that um, in these contests that I entered, they only required the first chapter. And I had only written the first few chapters of this novel. <laughs> And she said, send me the novel. And I said, wow, that is so great. What How much novel? time do I have? Yeah, what <laughs> novel? And she said, I'd like it in a month. And I said, oh, so I went and I wrote this incredibly complicated, unedited, really this, this beastly creation that I fell in love with. And she received it. And, and she was so kind <laughs> and so honest. And she said, while I really enjoy the potential, this isn't there yet. And, and of course, I, I knew this. I knew this <laughs> going into it. But it was her words that made me decide, you know what? Maybe I have a chance here. And so this editor, so she kind of put a fire under my butt. And I just started rewriting this thing, rewriting this thing, drafts and drafts later. And then I sent it out to a bunch of agents. And and, and actually, it got a really good reception this time around after like the, what, like the eighth draft when I finally sent it out. So it, yeah, I got a few phone calls from agents who were interested and uh, wanted to represent me. And I chose... Uh, somebody that is now a, a good friend of mine and somebody who I know has a long history in representing stories like mine and is such a fighter for stories like mine. I, I was really blessed to have that opportunity to to choose. And and so uh, anyways, Naomi Davis is just amazing. And she's free my plug, agent. Free plug. <laughs> you know, I can't help it. I just have to. But she's, no, also, she's also a good friend. Believe it or not, we ended up living in the same city. We live in a small city and we ended up living in the same one. So it's actually amazing. We can go for walks together. We can hang out and talk about my projects. I just never dreamed of such a thing happening. And because she's such a good friend, I really trust her opinions. Mm -hmm. And I trust when she says, you know, Dee, like, let's move on to something else. Or um, this one has bones or whatnot. So uh, she's been a huge fighter for me. She found me an incredible editor when she started pitching my work. And just really guiding me through that process because she has a lot of knowledge about the kind of editors that would like my work. So she's been an excellent guide 
through the abyss of publishing. So in selecting uh, a literary agent or representation, you randomly went through the phone book or, and you got responses and then you whittled it down to one. So, well, what I did is I, um, since I I do everything kind of backwards, um, I have heard that there is a whole book put out there to find literary agents. Um, I know this now. I've been told that it's a very popular book and that most people should, that are writers should get it. But what I did was I, I went to the library and I looked in the back of all the books that I loved, that I felt had something in common with, with my work. And then I, and then I hunted down their agent and I emailed their agent. <laughs> and that's how I went about it. I wouldn't, rec- I wouldn't necessarily recommend that for everybody else. It's time consuming. And you could more easily get that whole list from, from the literary agents uh, book that these, that these publishers put out. But I, I did that. And it actually worked out for me because I, I found agents that worked with authors that represented similar works to mine. Mm-hmm. And that's, how, that's actually how I came across those agents that offered Fantastic. That's an incredible story. What advice would you give to writers who are trying to get their first book traditionally published? I think I would say don't get discouraged by, you hear this so often, uh, by the rejections, because as they say, it only takes one. Uh, But more than that, your voice is a unique voice and there is a place for it out there. And it's just, it's just a matter of finding a matter of honing it, I think, and finding your the space the space where you can shine and where your voice really comes alive. And I think a lot of people receive these rejections that are on specific elements of their work, and they kind of take it as a whole and they say, "Oh, like my whole work, I need to I need to throw the whole thing out now, or I'm no good as a writer, or you know, I will never be good at at, at this kind of thing." I think that for writers to recognize their specific individual strengths is an incredible thing. And so I would even recommend before people start sending their work out there to ask their most trusted people, hey, where do you think I shine? Like where, mm-hmm. what do you think is great? And then cling to that and, and, and don't let that go. <laughs> you talk about finding your voice and uh, I think I found my voice, but it belongs to a mime. <laughs> We all find it in different ways. Don't we, though? <laughs> all right, we're going to move along to uh, part two, which is basically shameless plugging. So uh, it's time to tell uh, the good people listening, if you know if there are any, about what you have to sell them and where they might be able to find it. So my first question then is, is The Grave Thief the only book you currently have in publication and where can people purchase it? Yes, yes. I, I don't have that many things to sell them, <laughs> unfortunately. I just have The Grave Thief. That is my that is my one and only novel out there right now. Um, you can find it anywhere. Major Your, bookstores? Yeah, major bookstores, independent bookstores. Uh, lots of them carry it. Or, Amazon? Uh, or Amazon. You know what? I just listened to the audiobook version, and I was floored by Tim Campbell, who is the uh, the narrator. And he did an awesome job. So on Audible, um, yeah, you can find it there. Yeah. And uh, I am found as an author on Twitter. I'm D's with a Z, D-E-E-Z Han. And you can find me Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all those places where I'm supposed to be. I am there. TikTok. (laughs) 
I just have started TikTok. I'm, a, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm a little intimidated by TikTok because my students make such amazing TikTok videos. And I feel like I, I don't want to like, I don't want to, you know, look really silly next to them, but I'm trying. Wow. I'm... <laughs> it's a learning process. It's a learning process. So yeah, actually, we just made a video. I made my first video. (laughs) It's a book trailer on The Grave Thief, but we couldn't find a 12-year-old boy actor. So I had to be the 12-year-old boy. And and if you are up for um, a hilarious lark into my first attempts at acting, then you can look this video up. It's on YouTube. <laughs> and and it is me trying to be a thief. So they and would just punch your name in, and they would come up, or you can look up uh, the Grave Thief book trailer. Tundra okay. Tundra actually put it on their site as well, my publisher, and it's all over. Yeah, I think it's everywhere now, and it's mostly just a chance to really laugh at my acting abilities, um, but also to enjoy the wonderful music of the musician who was who has made this video. And okay. so, yeah, and a wonderful cinematographer as well, Owen, Owen Belanger, who did this for me. Oh, wonderful. And tried to make me look so much cooler than I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, do, you, do you presently have anything you're working on? Like, uh, is there a sequel or, and if so, how close is it to being done? Yeah, uh, I ha- I'm, have finished a sci-fi and so that is out there in the in the abyss looking for a home uh, with publishers and I'm contemplating some other projects uh, a second grave thief and working on a fantasy right now yeah and also a cozy mystery (laughs) so you're a busy writer then yeah we always have to have something to work on so and lastly do you have any parting words of wisdom hmm I (laughs) I don't usually have parting words of wisdom Um, but, uh, I think, well, the biggest thing for me is to, is to write what you love and not write what people expect you to write, just to write what you love. And to finish that then, maybe, maybe love what you write. Yes. Perfect. Yes. (laughs) You can use that. (laughs) I thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. and. Uh, thank you to Elizabeth Witten, the person who referred you to me, and and thank yes. you for agreeing to come on uh, my podcast, Between the Lines. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Randy. You have been listening to Between the Lines. In future episodes, I will not only be speaking with Canadian authors and writers, I will also be speaking with those from the other side of the writing industry, editors, agents, and publishers, in the hopes of getting a better understanding of how it all works together. If you liked what you heard, hit the subscribe button to be notified of new episodes and content. Send all your comments, suggestions, or any questions you'd like to have a guest answer to me at randy.btlpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to visit me at www.therandylacy.ca. While there, look for the Buy Me a Coffee button to help support the podcast. Thank you for your time and your ears. Tune in, be inspired, and write on. In business, you rarely hear the expression, for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. 
Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com. 